Hi, this is Joan Gomes. This is Bertil Trotter. And you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome to the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversation within the snow and avalanche world. My name is Matthias Walcher from the Austrian Association for Snow and Avalanches, and I am your host for this episode. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Wissen Avalanche Control, safety through innovation with additional support from 10 Barrel Brewing and Into West Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, the winter season is coming to an end, on the Northern Hemisphere at least, and uh, in the Alps. The snow has already retreated far up into the mountains. The snow cover is well below average for the season here and skiing involves quite some effort now. And when it comes to the Avalanche Hour podcast, I assume only the hardliners are still listening to the snow and avalanche topics at this time of the season. The type of persons who switch to the southern hemisphere in summer because they just can't get enough of the frosty white. And yes, I'm in particular thinking about you, Justin. Well, this episode is for all of you hardliners, because as interesting as it is to understand the depth of nature's processes, this is not the kind of podcast or the kind of episode you're listening while doing your dishes. This is the kind of podcast you can listen to on a long drive, ready to take the deep dive into the fascinating world of snow mechanics and avalanche formation. But before we start, our last recap of the avalanche conditions around here with the great Christoph Mitterer from the Avalanche Warning Service Tyrol. Hi Chris, hi again on the Avalanche Hour podcast. Uh, we will wrap up the season today together and talk about how this season in the Alps ended. Welcome. Hey Matthias, thanks again for having me. It's uh, nice to talk to you again for this very beautiful podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here. Last time we have been talking about that persistent week clear we had, which produced quite some avalanches, caused fatalities all over the Alps, especially in Tyrol and uh, neighboring areas. What happened with that persistent week clear problem? So, yeah, this persistent weak layer problem healed over the time. So we got less and less triggering also because uh, the weak layer gained a little bit of strength. But more importantly, uh, the slab tended to not support uh, fracture propagation any longer. So we had uh, very dry weather, which was uh, an average from temperature at the beginning, but then very warm. So uh, especially on uh, north-facing slopes, uh, the slab came more or less cohesionless and did not support fracture propagation any longer. From time to time, we had then some wind wind events and and uh, some. Uh, nasty areas gained again this uh, propensity for fracture propagation, 
But uh, let's say that the spots where you could trigger and propagate are increasingly uh, less dominant. Uh, and in fact, in Tyrol, we had a few uh, more avalanches, but luckily no fatalities. We had two or three uh, incidents with heavily injured persons. But in neighboring regions where uh, snowpack seems to be even even worse than in Tyro. It's uh, hard to imagine, but it, it was a matter of fact. We had a few more fatalities, I think two more on, on that week layer. Um, yeah, so luckily, uh, due to the fact that the, the slab lost its support behavior on fracture propagation, uh, the situation calmed down slowly but steadily. You you mentioned that we hadn't had a lot of precipitation. That uh, is true, especially for March. I think um, that I read a comment of the meteorological service who said basically that it was the that it would have been the driest March ever recorded if there would have wouldn't have been that precipitation on the 31st uh, of March. So what now we have the last week in April. Uh, we are wrapping up the season uh, on Saturday for Sunday. We will issue the last uh, avalanche bulletin. What is your summary of the winter season? How did the season end? First of all, was it fast? Was it slow? How, are the situ how is the situation at the moment? Uh, spring touring and... Yeah, what's the summary of the season? Yeah, yes, you said already uh, some large chunks or the most important facts. Uh, it was, uh, in two words, dry and warm. Too dry and too warm. Uh, and compared to our uh, climate, our prevailing climate, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's a matter of fact that climate change is happening here now. And especially in... in mid to high altitudes it's it's very dominant that we we had very special conditions uh, march was uh, one of the driest uh, in history and the history of recordings in austria is uh, pretty long so it's 250 years plus some a few more uh, with temperature recordings and as you said um the last day in March saved us for not being the driest March ever recorded in this long-standing history. Uh, but it was only a little bit of precipitation, not, not significant. Um, but the, the, the most important fact is it's also way too warm. It was like 10 degrees above average for some places. That's for March. April was a little less significantly warm but still april was too dry again and too warm which is um kind of becoming a habit so if i i checked a little bit the, the last uh, 12 months and there is only one month which was uh, too cold and too wet this was may 2021 and uh, we experienced this month as way too cold and way too wet, but it was just a little bit below uh, the climatological average. So the 30 years from the 
1960s to 1990s. So drier and warmer is the new normal. True, correct. And uh, also the new normal is that we get more extreme events, more extreme precipitation events in a short span of time, lots of precipitation. Or I think we will uh, experience that more often, more frequent in, in the next months or years. Twice, twice this spring we experienced a uh, southwest um, current which brought a lot of Sahara dust in our region, which covered the, the snow surface, producing a darker snow surface. Um, then we, as a result, we had a lower albedo. We had um, higher rates of melting. Is that something new as well? Has that always been the case? W what can you tell us about that? That was also one of the most uh, uh, visible characteristics of that spring. We had even three significant uh, events where very strong southwesterly currents brought up Sahara dust from the northern parts of Africa until Scandinavia. And... Uh, uh, this phenomenon is not new. We we had that also in in the last decades. What's new is that we have that so often, and uh, also that the, this phenomenon can last for a couple of days, uh, which probably has to do with uh, with those longer conveyor belts of our westerly wind system. Normally, in the Alps, in the European Alps, weather should change every six to seven days but it doesn't it's longer it's now 14 days uh, with prevailing similar weather conditions uh, and sometimes even longer and those uh, longer lead times in in some some uh, weather situations cause probably more distinct and more frequent phenomena as those dust on snow events we experienced the last five winters three or three times uh, or three seasons we had that those are very interesting uh, facts you you mentioned here or or uh, situations i think i think it would be nice to look into them and maybe do uh, an episode uh, with a with a meteorologist next season talk about how climate change is changing our weather and in, as a consequence also is changing our avalanche conditions. And definitely we, we have here kind of a time scaling issue a little bit, but uh, because uh, those extreme phenomena we are experiencing now the last, let's say, five to 10 years, represent only a very short span of time in, in terms of climatology. But uh, discussing with our colleagues from the National Weather Service, uh, we have the feeling that uh, those uh, extreme events, extreme precipitation events, uh, extreme Sahara dust events become more frequent and more uh, significant. So they are stronger. But from a statistical point of view, it's still possible that these things are random. Mm -hmm. um, 
to wrap up the the season, um, how does the season compare with with other seasons? Uh, also, with regard to incidents, fatalities. Uh, I think we can wrap the season up in uh, in one word. It was a little bit below average. So, uh, snow height was a little bit below average. Uh, fortunately, also uh, avalanche uh, accidents and fatalities were slightly below average. In Tyrol, we have normally fourteen avalanche victims per season. This time, we have we at the moment we are at ten. And uh, and then we had really rapid changes in, in, in snowpack and weather conditions uh, with a very or highly stratified snowpack, which, which caused uh, lots of uh, triggering. But I would say no close to, to catastrophic or, or a event that uh, kind of interests more our infrastructure. So it was mostly human triggerings, um, very variable conditions at the beginning, and then for March and April, too dry and too warm, as said before. Mm -hmm. uh, what's a little bit sad is that within the last year, we had concentration of human triggerings and fatalities with young guns. So uh, normally we experience in, in Austria one per year, And we had this time, so last winter and this winter we had five, um, which is kind of sad because uh, those uh, those young guns mostly are unexperienced, uh, don't bring their their equipment, and, and uh, we we discussed that a lot within the, the forecasting services and and uh, agreed that we have to put more effort into prevention tools for, for this user group. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Christoph, um, for participating in this podcast. And we will talk to each other next season again, hopefully. Uh, enjoy your summer. And uh, yeah, talk to you soon. I will. Thanks again. And uh, nice summer with flowers, biking and hiking. And see you next winter season when the flakes are puking down again, hopefully. Here we are now talking about the nerdy stuff with two of the experts when it comes to avalanche formation. My first guest has been referred to me as being one of the sharpest knives in the snow and avalanche drawer. Joan Gom is an ex-professional snowboarder. He's a former karaoke YouTube star and now professor at the EPFL, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology at Lausanne. He also works as a guest scientist at the WSL Institute for Snow and Avalanche Research, the SLF, located in Davos. And he focuses his work on the development of models for snow mechanics and avalanche formation. And with the experts in Davos, he experimentally tries to validate these models. And Bertil Trotte, on the other hand, he's our second guest on this show. He's a young gun doing his PhD with Joan at the EPFL in Lausanne. He uh, has been involved with groundbreaking research at uh, Joan's research group for about three years now, and he's just about to finish his PhD. 
is fascinated with the material snow, is an avid ski tourer, a backcountry skier, and an expert focusing on numerical and theoretical modeling of snow slab avalanche release. So with this introduction, we dive into the interview with, uh, with our two guests, Joan and Bertil. Thanks, Joan and, and Bertil, that you join us today on the Avalanche Hour. Very cool that you're here. Yeah, already a couple of years ago, uh, Joan, you have been working with uh, Disney, I think, and you were able to, to simulate the release and the flow of a dry slab avalanche. First of all, how did that collaboration with Disney happen? So, yeah, in fact, it was, uh, it was not uh, directly Disney. Uh, I worked with a professor at UCLA who worked for uh, this uh, great snow animation uh, uh, in the Disney movie Frozen. Uh, using a particular numerical method, which is called MPM, uh, material point method. And I was always fascinated about these methods that can really simulate solids and fluids at the same time. And I, I knew this would not only be powerful for graphics, but also for uh, uh, geomechanics. This was already uh, uh, something that started to be used quite a lot. And yeah, I, I sent an email and they said, yeah, come to LA and uh, let's work together. And And three months later, we developed uh, uh, an improved uh, snow model, which was validated with experimental research. And we were able to simulate these, uh, these avalanches. So did I understand that right? That the movie Frozen was produced before you actually went to, to LA in order to work with Exactly. This? I was not involved in the uh, initial uh, uh, snow paper uh, used to make the, the, the snow look good in the Disney movie. It was a paper from uh, Alexei Stomakin, uh, but I surfed with him when I came to to, uh, <laughs> to LA, actually. But uh, no, I was not involved in this work. Actually, this work, uh, I saw it and I was impressed, and I thought, okay, uh, with some changes in the in the physical model for snow, we could come, we could arrive with something which is quite uh, uh, really physically based and could be used to reproduce data. So we modified a bit this, this model. It was graphics-based, mostly the physical model. And it was improved to be more in line with classical uh, soil mechanics, let's say. Um, and, we, and, and we then validated the model with experiments. So you brought in the expertise in snow and avalanche release, I guess. Exactly, yeah. But they had the expertise in uh, numerical modeling and optimization Uh, making codes which are extremely powerful, efficient, and, uh, and fast. Mm -hmm. I have seen that simulation so often in recent years um, in different presentations. Why is it such a novelty? Why is it so special? I think it's uh, for the first time we were able to, uh, to simulate together the release and the flow of an avalanche, but even More than that, we were able to simulate complex release mechanisms, so like anti-crack propagation. So this, this phenomena, which is the collapse of the weak layer, uh, so remote avalanche triggering, that's actually the simulation that most people show. It's a simulation of remote avalanche triggering by a snowman, which triggers a failure in a weak layer. This failure propagates, and then the slab releases, and the snowman gets buried. And so this is, I think, this this sequence of events which has never been uh, uh, simulated in a unified way uh, uh, before 
And I think that that was uh, uh, what was the most, um, the main novelty, I think. It's bring, bringing all these things, let's say solid mechanics and fluid mechanics together into one simulation. So the whole process in one simulation. Bertil, can you explain us a little bit the process of avalanche release and the flow, like what different, different steps are there and in what main direction or in what main topic are you working at? Yeah, in my topic, I stop uh, at the end of the release. So I will explain you first the release and then the flow. Uh, I guess Joan can explain more uh, potentially. So for the release, in fact, it's not, uh, like you have, as is, as uh, Joan said, he explained the thing of the remote avalanche triggering. It, in fact, you can have a skier who overload the slab and below you have the weak layer which can break. And so you generate a crack uh, inside the weak layer and this crack, uh, if the conditions are satisfied, can start to propagate uh, and following a kind of flexural mechanism which is called anti-crack, in fact. It was developed by previously thesis from uh, a guy called Ayerly. And then uh, we observed, like it's why uh, we published this new paper uh, soonly, uh, we observe that there is a length after which you you have a transition to another mode, another mechanism of propagation, and then the cracks start to propagate really faster than the previous mechanism, and yeah, can can reach kind of the bulk uh, wave speeds uh, of the of the slab, and so it propagates along the slope, and then if you reach the the condition to break the slab, you have an uh, echelon or crack arrest fracture, and this still has to be to be more uh, in in depth analyzed to know uh, exactly when the the fractures stop uh, in the weak layer or when it continues after the secondary fracture of the slab. And so you have a complex mechanism which is uh, dependent also of the slope geometry after uh, to know when it stops or when it continues. To summarize, first of all, we have, if we can go back to the simulation, we have the snowman, which initiates a failure in the weak layer. And then we have a crack, which propagates. Um, then we have the slab, which releases kind of due to these tensile failures on the crown and on, on the sides. And then it slides down and you, you talk about kind of avalanche dynamics, right? Yeah, and that you have you have damage of the slab in uh, in more smaller pieces, and then you you go to the avalanche dynamics itself. Yeah. So if we're talking about anti-crack model of uh, Hayley, uh, who who introduced that, I think in the early two thousands, and then I remember we had also a different model from um, from McClung from the seventies or eighties. Juan, what are the differences? Um, can you explain first of all these these two different models and um, if they are if they are still valid today? So in the um, in the paper of McClung, the, the the paper of McClung is from 1979, and um, it's a it's a model that assumes uh, the weak layer as a as a as an interface that can fail only on the shear on the shear deformation. And one, um, one shortcoming of this model was the fact that uh, it cannot reproduce observations of 
uh, wounds or remote avalanche triggering because it's it's in shear only. So if you have no shear uh, deformation, like on flat terrain, you have no shear stresses, basically, almost not. It's mostly normal stresses over there. And so this model cannot predict the fact that you can trigger avalanches from flat terrain or remote uh, avalanche triggering. And so that's that's for this reason that Joachim um, uh, Hayoli in 2008 proposed the anti-crack uh, model. And in, and, and in this model, the weak layer is considered as a, as a porous material that can collapse. And when the weak layer collapses, then the slab will deform on top of it. It will bend. And it's this bending that actually can drive uh, crack propagation even on low angle terrain. And so this was a, a very nice, let's say, concept that has been brought to explain these observations. But what is important to note is that for me, the anti-crack is a concept. We should not necessarily say that anti-crack is the model of Hyoli in 2008 because our anti-crack model that we developed is, is also completely different from this one, but it takes this concept into account, the concept of collapse of, uh, uh, of this weak layer and bending, which allows to reproduce uh, uh, also remote avalanche triggering. But with that collapse or anti-crack model, we still have the problem that when it comes to steeper slopes, the propagation crack length increases with the steepness of the slope, which is not matched by reality, right? Yes, this is this is a, a, an aspect that uh, that I discussed quite a, a lot in previous papers. And, and I think what we need to reconcile uh, these two approaches is actually to take both concepts into account when we develop a model. And so our model actually has what we call mixed mode, uh, a failure envelope, which means that snow can fail under uh, different loading conditions, so also shear, and the weak layer can uh, uh, also collapse. And when you take these different ingredients, so shear, normal uh, stresses, and collapse, you end up with something which is in between McClung and Ayerly. So you have remote avalanche triggering, but you also see that uh, slopes become more unstable as they become steeper. That, that also means that both models which have been developed in the past are kind of still valid in, in certain special conditions. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. If you if you go to, to, to flat terrain, the anti-crack model will give appropriate results. If you go to rather steep terrain, the uh, model of McClung uh, can also give uh, reasonable estimates, but, uh, and, and also Bertil will, will talk about this, is that the model of McClung as now we understand it uh, uh, after this this new uh, uh, result uh, from Bertil, is that it reproduces a certain crack length, a critical crack length, which is not the one that we measure in small-scale experiments. It's a crack length which we have at the large scale. It's a crack length of the order of three, uh, two, three, four meters. And this critical crack length is what we actually call now a supercritical crack length. And then uh, uh, Bertil can, can also mention a bit more about this, uh, uh, this transition that he observed uh, in his simulations. So Bertil, I just, I just uh, continued talking about this um, supercritical crack length. 
Joanne was referring to. So when he talks about the small scale test, obviously with regard to critical crack length, we are talking about the PST here. So when we are we are cutting with the with with our saw through a weak layer in that uh, propagation saw test, at one point we might reach that point where where the crack propagates further. And this is only one type of critical crack length. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, first like first you need a you need a critical length for the crack to start its propagation, and this uh, critical crack length is quite uh, well reproduced by uh, or well modeled by early or more recent mixed mode uh, models. But then uh, after after you reach a second critical length that we call supercritical crack length, because you reach another level of the crack propagation. And at, at the, once you reach this this size, the cracks start to propagate uh, faster. And uh, as Mac, uh, in the in the loading mode of of uh, of MacLang or of the model of MacLang, and it goes very fast uh, and accelerate to the wave speed of the slab, to the longitudinal wave speed almost. Okay. So earlier we just, we we talked about MacLang and. Uh, and that his model only suits slopes which are steeper than 30 degrees. So we only reach that supercritical quack length at steep slopes. Yeah, in fact, this supercritical quack length uh, is uh, never reached on uh, on slope which are uh, of very low angle, because you you have this is the mechanism. You have a frictional uh, strength of the weak layer once it's broken, and so if you are below the friction angle, most likely if the collapse height is uh, is small, you will never reach the supercritical supercritical crack length because the length is infinite basically. And so if you increase the angle at uh, at slope angles higher than the friction angle of the weak layer which is broken, then uh, this length start to be finite, finite, and you reach after a few meters this supercritical crack length, which decreases with the increase of the slope angle. So for very high slope, this supercritical crack length which will reach a length which are not very, not uh, which are approaching the length of uh, of uh, of the mixed mode model, basically. How long would you say has a PST to be? On a slope larger than thirty degrees, in order to to see and measure that supercritical crack length. So, if you are really uh, at thirty degrees, because it's almost a slow friction angle, uh, it, it, this supercritical crack length can be very long. So it can be yeah very low. It can, it's, it's just at the divergence. So. It can be uh, more than 10 meters away, like it can be uh, 50 meters eventually. And uh, and if you increase the slope angle to 35 degree or 40 degree, then uh, after the order of 10 meters, then you reach uh, this transition. And we have uh, seen uh, like there is an unpublished still experiments, but there is uh, insights about this from uh, experimental PSTs done by uh, our colleagues at SLF. And they observed uh, this uh, transition uh, after a few meters on, on slope higher than 
35 degree, like or the order of 40 degree. So we realize that that transition is happening because the propagation speed increases. In fact, the the increase of the propagation speed is a consequence. It's not uh, because of the increase of the propagation speed that this transition happened. It's the transition of the loading mode that appears when it's sufficient that made the, the crack uh, accelerate very fast. Because you reach an, an energy barrier, uh, a strength uh, that's, uh, uh, that has to be overpassed. And when this energy barrier is overpassed, then you, you can uh, switch the mode of propagation to a pure mode to a pure shear mode of crack propagation. And this mode is, uh, is, can uh, travel faster than... Uh, Juan, if we would dig a PSD on a steep slope, and if we would like to uh, observe experimentally that switch or that that, that point where that uh, supercritical quack length is reached, can we simply observe the speed of the crack? Uh, if we want to observe the uh, supercritical crack length and this super shear regime of crack propagation, um, we would need uh, typically a slope which is about 10 meters, I would say. 10 meters in length, steeper than 30 degrees. And basically, uh, right now, we at the moment, we, we validated this theory based on video analysis of uh, real avalanches. But uh, there are also colleagues in Davos who did some uh, uh, large-scale experiments uh, in 3D. Um, typically, I think the, the slope length is about 10 to 15 meters, and they were able to observe this, uh, this super shear transition. And, and, and yeah, to come back uh, again on the model of McClung, so basically the model of McClung correctly predicts this uh, supercritical crack length. So that's why, you know, uh, in the in the literature, you could find a lot of people saying that those crack lengths are too large in the pure shear model, because typically they are about two, three, four, five meters or more, typically, whereas the critical crack length we have in the PST, it's typically 20 centimeters, uh, 30 centimeters. But in fact, the model of McClung uh, is better suited to actually reproduce the uh, supercritical crack length and the onset of uh, super shear crack propagation. Would it help us theoretically to, to find that supercritical crack length for a practical purpose? I'm not sure if it's really important to, to, to know the value of, I mean, if you know the value of the PST crack length, let's say the small scale crack length, there will be a correlation between this critical crack length and the supercritical crack length. For practice, I don't think uh, we need people to dig 10 meters PSTs. That's, that's, that's not going to be useful. Uh, what I think is important for, for practice is the fact that we can reduce the mechanism of crack propagation to something which is simpler. In fact, we can come back to something similar to what McClung developed, a pure shear model. But this was a this was a model which predicted the length, but it was not doing what was uh, uh, going on after the onset of crack propagation. So now we can simulate all the dynamics and can simulate the release of the avalanche. But this is computationally very expensive. 
to do that with a model which accounts for the collapse of the weak layer because you need to simulate the weak layer. But if you assume that the weak layer fails only in shear, then you can develop a simpler version of the model which actually basically neglects all the volumetric components of this weak layer and you can really make more efficient models, models that are really uh, faster, uh, uh, something called depth average models. So we will basically assume that all the properties are averaged over the height of, uh, uh, of the slope. And this makes simulations way faster. And we started to, to work in this direction. And this could really help to evaluate avalanche sizes. And as we know, this could be important for forecasting, but also for hazard assessment as input of avalanche dynamics uh, model for uh, uh, zoning, for example. What would you say are the determining factors for avalanche size? For avalanche size, of course, the slab uh, uh, tensile strength is going to be uh, very important. Um, if the slab tensile strength is low, actually, this super shear transition may not happen because the slab would break actually before this super critical crack length would be met. And we believe that large avalanches usually involve this super shear transition, which means that you need a slab tensile strength, which is large enough uh, to, to, to get to these widespread uh, uh, propagation. So um, the slab properties will be extremely important in, in defining the, the, the size. More important than the weak layer properties. Ah, you need a good combination. <laughs> you need a good combination. It's not that easy to say that the slab is the only uh, uh, factor. I mean, both, you need to be in, in, in the right regime. Uh, you need to have the weak layer, which is weak enough, but not too weak, because otherwise uh, it would not get to these metastable conditions where you have a slope which stayed there and uh, then is triggered by a skier or an explosive. So, uh, it's it's all a matter of uh, of getting into the the, the, the right uh, uh, zone, so I think both are important. So, uh, Bertil, we we said that we have a critical crack length, and uh, which is reached in the flat, but also in steep terrain. Then we have a supercritical crack length, which is only reached in in in, in steep terrain, steeper than the friction angle of of snow, and we have different um, speeds of that propagation involved how high are these speeds so for the case of the of the one uh, of anti-crack or the mixed mode one which is uh the bridging between the critical crack length and the supercritical crack length then you reach speeds which are of the order of uh, 0.5 times the shear wave speeds so they are likely like 15 meters per second or 40 meters per second between these two but uh, if you reach this supercritical crack length, then you can travel way faster and to almost two times the shear wave speed is to be precise. So we, get, we got in the simulation 1.6 times the shear wave speeds, which are more or less the longitudinal wave speeds. And uh, so you, you, you reach this, this kind of speed. So this, this speed can be of the order of more than 100 meters per second, 100, 150 meters per second, depending on the slab properties. Are we actually faster then, than an avalanche moving downslope, a powder cloud avalanche? So snow avalanches typically would flow at a speed of 
let's say below uh, 50 meters uh, per second. And this uh, uh, super shear crack propagation regime can be higher than 100 meters per second. So also putting it this way for skiers, if you want to, to escape a large uh, uh, release zone, you have to go very fast. You have to be extremely fast to be able to escape. Because anyways, the, even if you are extremely fast, even if you are Travis Rice, the crack will propagate faster than you. But still, you might be able to surf on uh, uh, the debris for some times and then maybe escape because you have uh, you have this uh, this inertia but uh, uh you won't you won't ski faster than that <laughs> okay so um <clears throat> that's that's an interesting topic right here when you're talking about that the super critical crack length is not reached in flat terrain is it reached lateral on a steep slope laterally this is what we call mode three, uh, out of plane crack propagation. And in our simulations, we don't see this transition on this, on the sides. So the speed on the side is limited by the shear wave speed, which means that it will be slower. This crack will propagate slower in this direction than in, uh, the upslope, uh, downslope, uh, uh, direction. And we know that also theoretically. We know that uh, cracks in mode three cannot uh, be super shear. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> uh, Joan, could you probably, for our listeners, explain the, the shear wave speed? The shear wave speed, it's, um, it's basically the speed of sound. When you, I think uh, people understand well what is the speed of sound in the, in the air, for example. And basically, when we say uh, um, wave speed in snow, that's the speed of sound in, 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 in the snow, basically. Um, we could see it this way. Uh, another way to say it is the way uh, Bertil mentioned it, is the speed at which the information travels in, in the material, uh, basically. That's, that's how fast stresses are transmitted. So in shear, it's the shear wave speed. And uh, under tension, for example, it's the longitudinal wave speed, or what we call sometimes the P wave speed. And the longitudinal wave speed cannot be uh, overcome. If, if we are uh, over the longitudinal wave speed, this is called supersonic. Supersonic uh, is, a, is a process that happens, for example, for planes. But here, we are not talking about supersonic. We are talking about intersonic. Intersonic is a crack that propagates between the shear wave speed and this uh, P wave speed. And that's what we are talking about here. We are not, it's called super shear, but in fact, it's not a supersonic crack. It's an intersonic uh, crack. Is there a, a maximum speed a crack can propagate through a weak layer? Yeah, it's going to be the, the, this longitudinal wave speed. It cannot travel faster than this longitudinal wave speed because that's the speed at which the information travels uh, in the slab, basically. So why is this crack propagating? It's because of slab deformation, basically. And the deformation of the slab, this information cannot be transmitted faster than the speed of these waves. So you are limited uh, uh, by this longitudinal wave speed, which, um, let's say, an order of magnitude is, is of the order of uh, 100 50 meters per second. So typically we'll have uh, crack propagation speeds uh, below that um, for, uh, for those super shear cracks. 
So we have reached a supercritical crack length and we have reached a maximum propagation speed within the weak layer. And we have a slab which strength overcomes the stress which is introduced on the tip of that propagating crack. If that strength is larger than the stress and the speed of the crack is not uh, of the of the propagating crack is not increasing anymore. Does that mean that a crack could propagate endlessly if nothing changes in the slab or the weak layer? Yeah, I, I think uh, if if I understood correctly, I think this is the case. It if there was no uh, topographical features, it would it would continue to propagate uh, endlessly, and that's what we believe happens in in large avalanches. Basically, it it, it propagates until it meets uh, a special topographical feature like a like a curvature like a ridge uh, and and we see that uh, often in, in in pictures of extremely large avalanches basically you see you see the fracture uh, really at at the at transitions in slope angles basically where the traction will be too large and the slab will break basically mm -hmm. <clears throat> and and then another question uh, I would have is when you have the, the slab and you saw at the crown of an avalanche, the crown of an avalanche to its sides very often has a certain angle where it's, it kind of has a, a triangular shape on the crown of a slab avalanche. Do you have a, a, an explanation why that is? Explanation? Uh, not yet, I would say. Not fully, but interestingly, the simulations we do reproduce this uh, triangular shape and we believe it's due to it's influenced by the friction uh, of the slab this is something very similar in 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 our opinion to the angle you get when you remove a retaining wall you have a retaining wall uh, which is retaining a soil you remove this retaining wall and you will get a certain angle of failure here and, and the principle is 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 a little bit similar because this angle is supposed to be about 45 degrees and plus a function of the friction angle of the material. And here we see in our simulations and also in some pictures of real avalanches that, in fact, this is quite close to 45 degrees. And so there is much, uh, uh, I mean, we have some work to do there to, to, to fully understand uh, uh, this shape. And I believe that we get this triangular shape mostly in the case of rather small avalanches. Because for large ones, it will start as a triangle, but then the weak layer failure will still manage to escape the slab fracture, and it will go around and it will do many small triangles, and in fact, we will have a bigger uh, uh, avalanche uh, uh, in the end. So that's why you see some kind of steps, you know, in large avalanches. It's not perfectly linear. You have a triangle, then a step, triangle, step, triangle, step. Etc. And that's that's something that we are working on at the moment. Very interesting. Bertil, it's uh, you're just about to uh, to publish a paper. Can you tell us a little bit about the, that publication? So it's just explaining and showing this transition that we we observed and basically that that we we bind the gap between Hayerly and McClung with that, and finally explain what. What seem to be contradictory, contradictory, but in fact they are just uh, valid, but at different stage and for different purpose of the 
of the mechanism of avalanche release. And so we show that and it's very, for this it's very exciting because we have now, from the previous results we got from the simulations, we observed a lot of avalanche with uh, super shear regimes and the our colleagues from SLF are also working on that. So suddenly everybody is working on that and nobody expected that uh, before. So this is very nice, I think. Yeah, in all the videos that people sent us so far, we get super shear transitions, so, which is so usually, you know, people send us only large avalanches. And in all these large avalanches, uh, we could see uh, this transition happening, which is quite interesting also because we are not the first to measure or model this transition. This has been uh, reported for earthquakes before, for strike slip earthquakes. And it's quite rare in uh, earthquake science to observe this super shear regime. And it might be that actually uh, it might be quite common in snow avalanches to have this super shear regime. So avalanches could be a small scale laboratory for earthquakes, in fact. So <laughs> we, were, we were talking now about uh, the dry snow slab avalanches. What about wet snow slab avalanches? Mm -hmm. I think we have a lot of uh, uh, things in common. Um, mechanical properties will be, will be different. So we would need to, to check. It's hard to answer uh, directly because we, we don't have data of wet snow avalanches. We don't have simulations for wet snow avalanches. So um, still a lot of uh, exciting things to do. Uh, Bertil, do you have a, a comment on, on wet snow? Uh, no, we didn't, we didn't analyze uh, directly wet snow, but uh, the mechanism of release uh, are always kind of the same. So we it suggests like first the weight of the slab could be higher. So why not? And then the, sh the friction angle could be lower eventually. And so we have also similar ingredients, but the mechanism, the dynamics itself, the rheology is completely different. So uh, for the for any 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 parameters like fracture energy, uh, I have I have no information on that, but I I would guess it happened. Of, of course, uh, it just we didn't analyze, so we have to focus on that. And what's on snow avalanche? It's one one step further. It's more complicated because you add the the complexity of water inside the mechanisms. So, Bertil, you have been uh, at the APFL now for three years, and you're about to finish your PhD. What are your plans? After you finished it, are you staying in the team with Joan? <laughs> no, like uh, I will, uh, I will not stay with Joan, uh, unfortunately, because he's a nice guy and like, uh, yeah, I think as a supervisor, he is quite competent because he has a quite he's quite close and have quite uh, strong managing skills. So, so I think, uh, yeah, I think he's a nice supervisor, and uh, for the future, like. Uh, I, there is uh, things that I have in mind, but uh, I will not tell you this uh, right now, I think. <laughs> Joanne, similar question to you. Uh, you just, you just um, what are your plans with regard to uh, future studies regarding this topic? Where, where is the, where's the focus heading to? I think the uh, topic of glide snow uh, avalanches is quite, uh, 
interesting, in my opinion. I mean, applying the, 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 the methods that we have here to glide snow avalanches by, adapted, by adapting the rheology, taking into account uh, rate-dependent effects, uh, and trying to, 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 to better understand the conditions for release of glide snow avalanches in the context of climate change. Quite an interesting uh, topic. We are also continuing, and, and this uh, is not over yet, huh? we, we are developing this model I mentioned before, this depth-averaged uh, avalanche release model, um, which could be uh, used for practice. And at this stage, we are in the validation uh, stage, uh, but we did not apply it yet to real topographies and uh, uh, large scales. So this, this will require um, uh, additional work. And um, what else? I mean, generalization to um, applications to other gravitational mass movements. Not only uh, avalanches is something that uh, that will take a lot of my uh, future uh, research. So like uh, landslides, debris flows, uh, rock avalanches, um, general types of uh, alpine mass movements, uh, uh, basically, uh, that are influenced by climate change. Uh, this will be uh, a lot, um, uh, this will be the focus on my future research. Uh, avalanches will still be part of this, uh, but I will uh, also expand. What are, the, what are the takeaways for practitioners who are listening to that podcast? What can they yeah, take away from, from, from your studies in the field? I think it's important uh, to, 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 to realize that this new, let's say, paradigm, this new finding does not necessarily have to change the way uh, we do our measurements. We'll never be able to uh, for a practitioner to go and measure this supercritical crack length. I think it's, it's important to keep in mind that at some point, this anti-crack mechanism may vanish and we may go to a pure shear mode of, of crack propagation. And um, for practitioners, I think this doesn't change necessarily the way we should uh, uh, view avalanche release, but this may in the future have some impact through the development of new models, which can predict the avalanche release size. So I would say that for practitioners, the impact is not there yet, apart from the fact that there is a new understanding of avalanche release. But in the near future, we will propose uh, uh, tools to evaluate the avalanche release size based on, on snowpack properties. And this could be useful for uh, practitioners. So if we have an avalanche size index, I don't know, one, two, three, for uh, the avalanche bulletin, um, that could be quite useful already. We, I'm not saying that we will say, okay, we have an avalanche of uh, 10,000 square meters. I don't know. Uh, we won't predict the exact surface, but at least giving an index could be important. And then it would be also very useful as input of avalanche dynamic simulations to have better estimate of the avalanche release size, which is usually estimated based on uh, topography only. Are you, are you thinking or are you imagining something which can predict kind of the maximum size of an avalanche or what are your thoughts here? I mean, maximum size for me means topography. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if you say, okay, this is the conditions for widespread crack propagation, we, we won't give a, an area or a volume. We will say, okay, now avalanches can uh, uh, release widespread over uh, long distances, and this would be avalanche size, I don't know, three. And then we could have, uh, um, on the other hand, a smaller index, avalanche size three, which 
could be typically those small uh, triangles that we see, which are uh, releasing over, I don't know, less than 10 meters. So we would need to decide to, to discuss these things. I mean, um, what is uh, the length corresponding to avalanche size one, size two, size three? Uh, we will need to discuss this also with practitioners. Uh, uh, we will have to discuss with stakeholders, with uh, uh, several people to, to, to define appropriately uh, those indices. Okay, um, I think uh, I think we will wrap this up now. Uh, thank you, Bertil. Thank you, Joanne, for your time and for uh, for talking to me on the Avalanche Hour podcast. And uh, I hope we will read a lot of interesting papers of you in the uh, upcoming months and years. Thank you very much. That was great. Great talking to you. Bye. See you. For more information on this topic, you can visit the homepage of the Austrian Association for Snow and Avalanches at oegsl.at and you can find a presentation there, which Joanne gave at the beginning of April um, on an online seminar for the Uxl. This is very recommended, pretty good um, presentation. And now you reach the end of this episode. This episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast was produced by the one and only Caleb, Merrill, and myself, Matthias Walcher. Thanks again to our supporters, Vision Avalanche Control, Ten Bell Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. And if you like what we are doing here, you can also donate and support us. More information on the avalanchehour.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you are listening on, or even better, tell a friend. Follow us on the socials, Facebook or Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Artwork credits go to Mike Tia. You can check out his stuff at MikeTia.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks also to Christoph Mitterer and our guests, Joan Gom and Bertil Trotté, for contributing to this show. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, keep having fun out there. Have a nice summer. Enjoy the vacations. And see you next winter. Okay, sure. Yeah, then uh, goodbye. <laughs> Ciao.